authorities left families internally opaque to claims of justice, Rawls changed that aspect of his theory. He also ventured the hypotheses that were women treated equally in the family, population growth, would, population growth would cease to be a major issue, and that such a change would have a positive impact on unlawful immigration and the evils attendant upon current policies for dealing with it. Special attention to the family is easily justified in terms of the early formative impact of families on the child's development of a sense of justice. Yet families are not the centerpiece of my concern. Family is not the stage for many of the worst forms of misogyny. <coughs> many victims of the worst misogyny are not particularly attached to men. These victims include women who do not rear children, women with careers, not necessarily as caregivers, and with careers and economic independence, and women who are intimate with women. In Renaissance Europe, and I put Renaissance in quotation marks here, <laughs> women who are not attached to men, dispensable women, economically independent midwives and healers, were the most vulnerable to being burnt as witches. In India, widows were burnt. Today, many women who res resist traditional expectations regarding marriage are vulnerable to so-called honor killings. Globally, it is very young women who are sold and enslaved for sexual service. Families are often sexist without being misogynist. Misogyny, literally woman-hating, is the term feminists apply to the most deeply hostile environments of and attitudes toward women and girls, and to the cruelest wrongs to them, regardless whether the perpetrators harbor feelings of hatred. Sexism includes misogyny, but encompasses a, a wider spectrum of bad attitudes and behaviors, including male arrogance, male-centeredness, not only in men, sex discrimination, and female subordination. Not all sexism is culpable. Misogyny tends to be highly culpable and grossly oppressive. By misogyny, I have in mind evils perpetrated with aggressive, often armed, use of force and violence against women. Rape and domestic battery, kidnap for sexual slavery, forced prostitution, honor killing, stoning, simulated suicide by burning, widow burning, and horrors without special names, such as throwing acid in a woman's face to disfigure her. <clears throat> Most global are the overlapping evils of rape, including forced prostitution and domestic battering. <clears throat> More, lo more local are the systematic, irreversible, and disabling mutilation of girls, as in clitoridectomy and infibulation, coerced sati, that is widow burning, which is not altogether a thing of the past, and honor killing. My work on evil has been motivated by concerns to identify evils and avoid perpetrating further evils in responding to them. On what I call the atrocity paradigm, Evils are reasonably foreseeable, intolerable harms produced by inexcusable wrongs. There is no need of malicious motives, such as sadism or spite. A practice is evil when there is morally no excuse for it, and acting in accord with it foreseeably does intolerable <coughs> harm. Not all injustices are evils, only those that are inexcusable and do intolerable harm. What makes harm intolerable is not altogether subjective. A reasonable conception of intolerable harm is that it is a significant deprivation of basics ordinarily required for a life or a death to be decent for the person whose life or death it is. Such basics include non-toxic air, water, and food, sleep, 
the ability to move one's limbs, the ability to make choices and act on some of them, freedom from severe and remitting pain and from debilitating humiliation, effective bonds with others, a sense of one's human worth. Although not exhaustive, that list is enough to show that intolerable harm does not totally depend on individual preferences. Intolerable harm interferes with one's ability to function decently as a human being. <coughs> a wrong can be inexcusable in two ways, which I call metaphysical and moral. There is metaphysically no excuse when there was no diminished capacity for choice in the wrongdoer, no insanity or other relevant disability, for example. There is morally no excuse when no significant morally good reasons provide a partial defense. When there is some moral excuse, there are significant reasons in favor of the deed that carry moral weight, although not enough to justify it on the whole. Non-moral reasons may favor the deed, and a reason that might carry moral weight for some deeds may carry none for others. An inexcusable deed or practice is morally indefensible. On the atrocity paradigm, evils are inexcusable in both ways, metaphysically and morally. On these understandings, Rape, domestic battering, and murder, as in honor killing, simulated suicide, and coerced sati, are generally evils as social practices and in individual instances. Disfiguring and disabling women and girls can be evils as well, depending on forms, contexts, and consequences. Stoning, like burning, tortures many victims to death and is especially evil. What uses of force and violence are justifiable for defense by women against evils of misogyny in a society where we are not morally <coughs> enhanced? Right? I ask, what is justifiable rather than what is just because, as Rawls often noted in his lectures, full justice may be unrealizable when currently available options are shaped by past wrongful choices. When no fully just options remain, it may be possible to reduce the amount or seriousness of deprivations of justice or to contain them, prevent them from spreading or worsening. A best choice can be the lesser of unjust options or the creation of options that set a course for future justice. Even a best option can leave what Bernard Williams called remainders, including injustices that can never be adequately redressed. Uses of force and violence include matters of individual choice and matters of policy or practices involving cooperation. Rawls's theory of justice for society's basic structure includes distinct principles for these different cases. Two principles for social practices or institutions and one principle, fair play, for individuals. In the law of peoples, the distinction between justifying a practice or policy and justifying a particular choice seems not to figure unless in what he calls in with Walzer the supreme emergency exemption, if that exemption is understood as an unpunishable violation of policy rather than a policy itself. Rawls's theorizing about the law of peoples remains at the level of policies and practices. His principle of fair play presupposes principles at that level, and so the question arises how are individuals to approximate fairness in the absence of relevant social practices, institutions, or organizations for defense? At the root of Rawls's idea of fair play is the idea of reciprocity. Rawls's principle of fair play, incorporating reciprocity, is borrowed from H.L.A. Hart, 
who described it as a mutuality of restrictions. According to that principle, it is sufficient for one's obligation to follow rules of a just practice <coughs> that one freely accepted benefits of others having done so. This principle leaves much unspecified. It does not say what is necessary. It does not say there is no obligation if the practice is unjust. Would that depend on how unjust? Or if one lacked choice about accepting benefits, would it depend on the nature of the benefits? Or if one did not benefit, although it was reasonable to expect that one would? Nor does it say how many must cooperate in order to generate duties to reciprocate. It is unclear how much women would be obligated by accepting without actually being exactly being forced to do so the benefits of existing practices and institutions. Consider the following true stories on which I have written elsewhere. One is that of Francine Hughes of The Burning Bed, who in 1977 poured gasoline on her sleeping former husband and ignited it, killing him. After years of being battered by him, despite her efforts to enlist law enforcement protection. The other is that of Ines Garcia, who in 1974 pursued and shot with intent to kill at two men who had just raped her. Right after the rape, but before the shooting, she received a phone call from one of them warning her to leave the area and threatening her if she did not. She killed one of them, the other escaped. Excuse me, this is necessary. <laughs> what these survivors did may have been justified, but is not likely to be described as fair or just, however deserved their actions. Neither does it seem fair or just to evaluate their choices simply by Rawls' principle of fair play, although one could apply it as follows. They had benefited somewhat by living under the rule of law, which argues in favor of letting courts not victims, decide perpetrators' fates. But the law also failed to protect them well against rape and battery. A more appropriate standard for evaluating their responses might be whether they chose the lesser of injustices. Would it not be a worse injustice to let such evils continue unopposed by anything more than incompetent or unwilling law enforcement agencies? Clearly, there is a need for creative thinking on how using the apparatus of law to combat such incompetence and unwillingness. That process is slow. Women are poorly represented in it. Meanwhile, many endure irreversible harm or are at risk to be killed. Of options available to them, which represent the lesser injustices? There are also questions of justice regarding how others should respond to what the women did. States may have no choice but to charge and try them for murder. But how should women respond? One, an attorney, responded by successfully defending Garcia. Hughes and Garcia were each found guilty of murder, verdicts overturned on appeal. Hughes, in Michigan, was declared not guilty by reason of insanity. Garcia, in California, was found justified in self-defense. None of these verdicts may be totally satisfying. If guilty seems unjust to the women, not guilty raises the question whether individuals should be allowed to execute assailants who have not been tried and are not at that moment engaged in an assault. It is tempting to adapt John Stuart Mill's observation that, and I quote him, 
If society lets any considerable number of its members grow up mere children, society has itself to blame for the consequences. This is interesting from Milne, an argument not from utility, but from fairness. Adapting his reasoning, we might argue <clears throat> that a society that fails to protect any considerable number of its members has itself to blame when they do what they judge needful to protect themselves. That does not imply that they act justly. It does suggest where the greater injustice might lie. In war, some agents confront options, none of which is fully just. The law of peoples contains Rawls's only extended discussion of war. Here, he invokes the idea of the social contract by way of what he calls a second original position to yield hypothetical agreements that representatives of liberal peoples could make, first with each other, second with non-liberal, decent peoples. The agreements include principles for engaging with states that are not well ordered, including outlaw states. These, Rawls's principles of war, might be best conceived as principles for containing injustice, principles of justice only because motivated by a concern for justice, hope for future justice, and values underlying justice. Rawls's approach to war seems actually to respond to these questions. In a people's defense against unjust aggression, one, what scruples best contain, reduce, or at least do not aggravate injustice? And two, what principles pave the way for outlaw states to become well-ordered so that relationships of justice with them are possible? Rawls uses the language of just war, which sounds as though he thinks war can be just. Yet that terminology may persist only because of tradition. Both just war theory and Rawls's principles are for the conduct of war by societies that value justice. It is consistent with Rawls's best insights to acknowledge that the most to be hoped for in the conduct of war is containment of injustice and movement toward justice. Principles of just war then become scruples for managing war's <coughs> inevitable injustices, identifying the lesser of unjust options, and paving the way for, at least not putting obstacles to, a future in which no states are outlaws. So suppose we approach Rawls's thoughts on war and justice with the following two ideas. First, there is in reality no such thing as true justice in fighting a war, even if its cause is just. Rather, there are degrees of injustice. Second, some wars need to be fought because the alternatives are morally worse. What is justifiable depends <coughs> on alternatives in the way that what is just does not. Justice is determined more abstractly by relationships that are not always realizable. Fighting a war when alternatives are worse is a choice of the lesser of unjust options, attempting at least to contain injustice and ideally setting a stage for future justice. So understood, Rawls's thoughts on war are suggestive for addressing a war on women. Mary Calder argues that the new wars since the Cold War involve a blurring of distinctions between war, usually defined, and I'm quoting her now, usually defined as violence between states or organized political groups for political motives. So it's between more organized crime and large-scale violations of human rights, end of quote. Extending her reasoning, one can argue that many ancient massive violations of human rights warrant classification as wars, at least as much as the Cold War, drug wars, and wars on terrorism. 
Such classifications change, in her words, blur the meaning of war, a price of the moral recognition of relevant analogies. Millennia of global misogyny bear enough analogies to hostilities, aims, and consequences of wars perpetrated by heads of state to warrant speaking of a war or wars of aggression against women, some of it consciously organized, some coordinated by way of norms internalized early by individuals. In these ways, sex wars re resemble race wars. A decade before Caldor's work, Harvard Medical School psychiatrist Judith, Judith Lewis Herman wrote, there is a war between the sexes. Rape victims, battered women, and sexually abused children are its casualties. Hysteria is the combat neurosis of the sex war, end quote. She compared female hysteria to shell shock in soldiers during World War I. Both today are recognized as post-traumatic stress disorder. War between the sexes, however, suggests a more balanced distribution of responsibility for aggression than we find. For the most part, women have not fought back very aggressively. War between the sexes would be progress. What we find is better described as a war on women. <clears throat> the aggression has been mainly by men, not without female support, and groups instituted by men against females on account of their sex. As with outlaw states, this aggression is not justifiable self-defense, despite some rhetoric of honor. It is to advance and secure prudential and other interests that lack moral grounding. Collaborating women are also victims. Some male resistors become victims. Others profit but are not aggressive. Some are bystanders. Some beneficiaries are not very aware that their profits come at women's expense. Those aware who choose to do nothing are collaborators. Those, aware who those unaware who should be are at least complicit. Many men in these categories are intimate with and feel benevolent toward women. The war is not by all men as hostile aggressors against all women. Aggressors, however, are mainly men and victims mainly women. There are environments where women are less likely to be targets of aggressive violence based on their sex. Some men would not knowingly advance themselves at women's expense, let alone do so violently. Still, women court danger when they venture outside those environments, and many men are not very aware when they advance at women's expense. Misogynist evils mostly lack national <coughs> boundaries. With the exception of certain war crimes, such as mass rape, they tend not to victimize entire peoples, nor are perpetrators always a people. But peoples are guilty of failing to do well at protecting women and girls. Eventually, many women, individually and in groups, confront needs to defend themselves. Most misogynist practices do not fit the conventional model of war Rawls has in mind in his Law of Peoples. His parties to war are well-ordered peoples and outlaw states, not individuals. Opposing aggressive outlaw states are well-ordered peoples whose societies are relatively compliant with a shared public conception of justice. So described, well-ordered people sound innocent and clearly distinct from their enemies. Women are seldom innocent. They are often sleeping with the enemy. Their loss of innocence is frequently traceable to misogynist evils they have suffered. Many inhabit something like what Primo Levi called gray zones, in which victims become complicit in the evils from which they too suffer. 
Well-ordered peoples, however, are less innocent than they sound when described as above. Even relatively well-ordered peoples, as an expression Rawls uses, contain and tolerate what are for women outlaw environments in which a commitment to justice for women and girls does not exist or is not very effective. Outlaw here does not mean what gender critics have meant. It does not describe rebels against conventional gender practices. On the contrary, it describes conventional gender practices that are deeply unjust, non-compliant, as Rawls would put it, with principles of justice. If global misogyny is not unproblematically conceived as martial, neither are domestic misogynist evils unproblematic as causes for armed <coughs> humanitarian intervention. What people does such a good job of protecting its females that it would be justified in militarily intervening for that purpose into the affairs of another? Such glass houses questions are raised about humanitarian intervention generally. In response, some propose that international bodies, such as the United Nations, be given sole power to authorize interventions. But glass houses questions can be asked also of international bodies. Now, at issue are long track records of failing to protect women and girls against inexcusable, intolerable harms, not inevitable failures due to error or ignorance. <clears throat> Despite analogies between a war where parties are peoples or states and a war on women, there are obvious disanalogies. So up to this point, I have put the analogous war in quotation marks and scare quotes. I drop them for the rest of the paper. So don't hear the scare quotes. Fighting back in a war on women is like fighting a war on terrorism in which the terrorists are not states. Some of it is war on terrorism that targets women. Unlike states, the sexes are not agents. The sexes might be regarded as groups in virtue of shared interests, but the sexes do not act as groups, although subgroups act. Peoples at war, in its conventional sense, act through representatives. Outlaw states act, although they do not represent their peoples, which is why Rawls doesn't call them states. There are no representatives of the sexes considered as such. Were we to employ Rawls's imaginative device of a veil of ignorance for choosing principles to govern women's responses to misogynist evils, the parties would have to represent individuals, as in Rawls's first use of the idea of the original position. So why not simply leave it a task of the parties in Rawls's first and second uses of the original position to propose principles for responding to misogyny? Is it helpful to use the original position to generate principles specifically to guide women's responses to misogyny? I will suggest a way that it is, or might be. It should indeed be a task of parties in both of Rawls's original positions to propose principles governing responses to misogynist crimes. The law of peoples includes the principle, peoples are to honor human rights. But there is no enforcement provision other than humanitarian intervention, the particulars of which are not given. Parties in the first original position would want women protected too, but how would their reasoning go? When the task is non-ideal theory for within a society, Parties in the original position must know that their society may be permeated even in law enforcement by misogyny, and that many may in reality not be committed to principles reasonable to choose behind the veil. <coughs> Do circumstances of justice then obtain? How should parties conceive of their task? It might be thought that well-ordered peoples would not have that problem. 
But misogynist evils are not confined to outlaw states, or burdened states, or benevolent dictatorships. The division of societies into those well-ordered and those not sounds simpler than the reality. Being well-ordered is a matter of degree in how well-governed a people is, how well-developed, well-applied, widely shared, and comprehensive its public conception of justice. Rawls refers to relatively well-ordered peoples. No society is thoroughly well-ordered. Relatively does not even imply very. Misogynist subcultures exist within many a relatively well-ordered people, as do areas of conduct in which an otherwise relatively well-ordered people is not at all well-ordered. Individuals, too, can be inconsistent. People who try to be guided by justice toward those, those they respect often treat others as inferiors. This phenomenon applies to race and gender. Many men in relatively well-ordered societies are not motivated to grant women the respect they grant other men, or some other men. So the question arises, whom would parties in the original position represent when proposing non-ideal theoretical principles to address such evils as those of misogyny? In what Rawls calls his second use of the original position, parties represent only well-ordered peoples. They don't represent outlaw states or burdened societies. Analogously, in Rawls's first original position, if the task were to choose principles for a partially compliant society, parties should represent not all individuals, but only those of presumable compliance. They need to know roughly the collective strength of that group to estimate how much compliance to expect on the other side of the veil in order to assess even whether circumstances of justice obtain so they can set a realistic task. Rawls understands circumstances of justice, it's a technical term for him, as conditions under which cooperation is both useful and necessary. Everyone is vulnerable, but none so powerful as to be able to dominate the rest for long. In ideal theory, Parties in the, in the first original position know this about their society. In non-ideal theory, must the parties know that non-compliance is not so widespread that cooperation is hopeless? Is that enough to give point to their task for parties who know they might turn out to be victims of well-entrenched misogyny? What if cooperation has been hopeless? Might the task then shift to proposing principles for coalition building to ground hope of sufficient cooperation. In any case, victims can be justified as a matter of self-respect in fighting even hopeless battles. If they care about self-respect, presumably they care about <coughs> principles for fighting even hopeless battles. Rawls's use of the contract idea in his sketch of the law of peoples does not receive the elaboration of reasoning that we find in a theory of justice. Perhaps the contract idea is less useful for non-ideal theory. More interestingly, perhaps the task of the parties changes. Something like Nietzsche's view of early justice is suggestive for non-ideal theory. Nietzsche wrote in his Genealogy of Morals, justice on this elementary level is the goodwill among parties of approximately equal power to come to terms with one another, to reach an understanding by means of a settlement and to compel parties of lesser power to reach a settlement among themselves. Nietzsche, unlike Rawls, presents the compact as historical, not hypothetical, and among, as among those who know they are powerful, 
not among parties behind a veil who may know only that cooperation is not hopeless. But Nietzsche also presents his speculative compact as among parties of goodwill, suggesting that it may not be merely a modus vivendi and as including provision for coercing others. A Rawlsian hypothetical contract for non-ideal theory might likewise be conceived as among parties of goodwill and as including principles for using force against those whose goodwill cannot be presumed. This is how Rawls does conceive it for the case of war. Rawls admits to a certain agnosticism about the likelihood of success in implementing the law of peoples and ultimately bringing about a world in which all societies are members of a society of well-ordered peoples. What sustains him is the human possibility of success here. This allows him hope. <clears throat> Rawls does not assume that the basic structure of society and relations among people are the only subjects of justice. They are the only ones he addresses. Defense of women should doubtless be incorporated into justice for both subjects. Given the histories of people, however, that will not much encourage women. A more promising idea might be to seek circumstances of justice among women, or groups of women, or to try to cultivate circumstances in which cooperation among women would be fruitful, as it surely seems necessary. Women and girls do not form a society. They form a kind of group, joined, if not united, across boundaries of people by common and overlapping interests. This group is not yet capable of action, although subgroups are. What social units are appropriate subjects of principles for the self-defense and mutual defense of women and girls against evils of misogyny? Feminist groups have not achieved stability, let alone membership comparable to states. An interesting approach embraced by radical feminists of the 1970s exemplified earlier in Virginia Woolf's Society of Outsiders, is separatism. Woolf was moved in her last most radical book to have her female outsider proclaim, in fact, as a woman, I have no country. As a woman, I want no country. As a woman, my country is the whole world, end quote. Women need principles for forming social units of defense against global and local misogyny. Meanwhile, women need principles now for defending themselves and each other as individuals. So I start with principles for individual self-defense in a war on women. Instead of going much into the reasoning of parties in his second use of the original position, generating the law of peoples, Rawls sets out a list of principles, including principles for war. Let us consider how adaptable those war principles are to the case of women when their case is not subsumed under the basic structure of the society of a well-ordered people or its foreign relations. Following just war theory, Rawls begins his discussion of war by first taking up justifications for going to war, use on vellum, and states a version of the principle of just cause in two parts. The first part is negative. He says, <clears throat> no state has a right to war in the pursuit of its rational as opposed to its reasonable interests. His distinction between rational and reasonable interests roughly tracks Immanuel Kant's distinction between merely prudential interests and morally grounded ones. Reasonable interests take others into account. Merely rational interests need not. The second part of Rawls's use of bellum principle is positive. He says, any society that is non-aggressive and that honors human rights has the right of self-defense. Later, he mentions humanitarian intervention, but does not elaborate or 
clarify. Adapting Rawls's just cause principle to the case of women requires distinguishing women's merely prudential or rational interests from morally grounded reasonable interests and altering the part about a non-aggressive society. The first part of the principle is satisfied when the interests protected are the morally grounded <coughs> interests of security and freedom. Women are not justified in resorting to violence over conflicts regarding forms of discrimination that hamper their pursuit of merely rational or prudential interests, <coughs> say merely personal ambitions, that are not at the same time reasonable interests. In the second part of the principle, a plausible substitute for society that is non-aggressive <coughs> might be one who lacks a history of unjust aggression and whose principles would not permit it, so that the principle becomes anyone who lacks a history of unjust aggression, whose principles would not be permitted, and who honors human rights has the right of self-defense. Thus, complicity under duress need not negate a justification for self-defense. Next, Rawls offers six principles for the conduct of war, use in bellow. The first states that the aim is a just and lasting peace among peoples, and especially with the people's present enemy. Adapting this principle, the plausible aim would be a just and lasting peace between or among the sexes. But the part about peace with one's current enemies is not clearly adaptable. When the parties are not group agents, one's most obvious current enemies are the individuals one is most <coughs> likely to harm deliberately in war. Perhaps the aim should be reconceived for both the law of peoples and the case of women as a peace that paves the way to reducing significantly the injustices that led to war. Rawls's second use in, in Bellow principle is, well-ordered peoples do not wage war against each other, but only against non-well-ordered states whose expansionist aims threaten the security and free institutions of well-ordered regimes and bring about the war. This principle seems redundant, given the use ad bellum principle. Well-ordered peoples are not aggressively expansionist. But here, what Rawls may want to emphasize is that well-ordered peoples resolve conflicts among themselves, even over reasonable interests, without violence. An analog for women might be that women governed by a sense of justice resolve conflicts with individuals who are not outlaws, even over reasonable interests, without violence. We need then to define outlaw individuals. A, a plausible approximation is individuals who are prepared to use violence in a society that fails to restrain them from doing so in pursuit of interests that are not reasonable. Rawls's third principle distinguishes degrees of responsibility among three groups, the outlaw state's leaders and officials, its soldiers, and its civilian population. Adapting it, we can distinguish levels of responsibility for aggressive violence against women. Parallel distinctions might be those who have greatest control over whether, how, and what kinds of aggression are perpetrated, compare leaders and officials. Those who are instruments of aggression but lack such control, compare soldiers who are not leaders or officials. And those under the authority of members of the first group but who are not instruments of violence, compare civilians. Further distinctions might be needed regarding bystanders and beneficiaries. Rawls's fourth principle is, well-ordered peoples must respect, so far as possible, the human rights of members of the other side, both civilians and soldiers. 
This principle seems straightforwardly adaptable and even to follow from the fifth principle, which is that well-ordered peoples are to foreshadow during war the kind of peace they aim for and the kind of relationships they seek. This duty, he notes, falls largely on <coughs> leaders and officials. There, although there are no current analogs of leaders, the basic idea is important for women. What kinds of relationships with men should women aim for and foreshadow? Women have been steered into relationships that give men constant intimate access to them, often to the detriment of peace. The relationship lacking has usually been one of adequate respect. Women should try to foreshadow a peace in which women have, in which men have less of that intimate access and are more respectful. This idea rules out sexual seduction by women as a war tactic. Rawls's sixth principle is that practical means and reasoning must always have a restricted role in judging the appropriateness of an action or policy. His intent seems to be to emphasize that the preceding principles restrict the role of means and reasoning in war. In his gloss on this principle, he invokes the exception of supreme emergency, discussing it only briefly, relying for illustration on Nazism's evils to civilized life everywhere. Like ticking bomb torture, supreme emergency is a dangerous idea, liable to gross abuse. If it has validity, nevertheless, <coughs> we should appreciate that it undercuts the human rights of the fourth principle and the foreshadowing of peace of the fifth. As applied to women's resistance, supreme emergency measures, which violate normal restrictions on means and reasoning, should be not only needed quickly, but reasonably <coughs> judged necessary and under the circumstances sufficient for an objective of supreme importance transcending that of any individual and limited in severity by the severity of evils to be prevented. Still, it is good to be skeptical of the very idea <coughs> of a supreme emergency exemption. Insofar as Rawls's principles say not what is justifiable, but only what is not, they are scruples. Only the second part of the just cause principle and the supreme emergency exemption, not a principle but an exception, are explicitly about what is justifiable. The unnamed elephant in the vicinity is the use of force and violence to kill and maim. The idea is that killing and maiming can be justifiable if these principles are observed. Adapting that conclusion to women's resistance yields the idea that killing or maiming perpetrators of the evils of misogyny can likewise be justifiable if analogs of Rawls's principles are observed. Did the actions of Hughes and Garcia fall within those limits? Did they avoid doing evil in response to the evils they faced? They inflicted harm clearly intolerable from their victim's point of view, but were they justified? And if not, had they any moral or metaphysical excuse? Consider just cause. If the interests defended were the morally grounded interests in security and freedom, not some merely prudential interests or, say, an interest in revenge, they satisfied the first part of this principle. If the women lacked histories of unjust aggression, were not committed to unjust aggression and honored human rights, they satisfied the second part. Of course, what is at issue is whether their responses failed to honor human rights. Perhaps it is sufficient for this principle that they lacked histories of commitment to aggressive injustice or of failing to honor human rights. If Hughes and Garcia are regarded as ordinary civilians, which is how the courts regarded them, 
Their acts are difficult to construe as self-defense, given how assault and battery are defined in criminal law. Hughes's batterer was asleep. Garcia's rapists had done their deed. She was free to go. But military combat rules are reasonably more permissive. Soldiers can attack at night when the enemy might be asleep. They do not have to retreat whenever retreat is possible. Hughes and Garcia defended against patterns of violence, not simply particular episodes. Neither could depend on state protection. Regarding them as more like military combatants than like civilians seems fair. Another way to look at Hughes is that she defended herself against a coerced relationship, which did not dissolve when the enforcer slept. Were their aims a lasting peace with those who currently terrorize women? The analogy breaks down if the peace at issue is between groups at war. Hughes was not fighting batterers in general, nor was Garcia fighting rapists generally. Each fought only her own assailant or assailants, nor was either fighting as a member of a group. Yet their deeds were potentially precedent-setting, sending the message that men cannot be confident of being able to get away with misogynist violence a message compatible with peace. Whether that is a dominant message depends also on whether women who do likewise are exonerated. Most women who respond as they did go to prison, many for the rest of their lives. Still, the first message remains partially valid. The men killed did not get away with it and might have a salutary effect. Did either woman fail to make relevant distinctions regarding responsibility? Hughes tried first to enlist law enforcement help. Although Garcia succeeded only in killing the 300-pound man who stood guard while the other assaulted her directly, she tried to kill both and regretted only that she did not succeed in killing the other man. He was never charged with a crime. <coughs> Neither woman harmed others. Was either woman guilty of a human rights violation? Did Hughes violate the right not to be tortured? As her batterer was asleep in a drunken stupor, there may be no way to know what he felt. She should have been aware of the danger that she might be torturing him. Although she was protecting children also, her objective was, I would say, insufficiently important and transcendent to make plausible a supreme emergency exemption, that is here a violation of restrictions on means and reasoning that proscribe torture. Further, her incendiary deed, although sufficient, may have exceeded what was needful, a conclusion calling for judgment regarding her long-range options. In any case, it appears not to have been premeditated, which enabled Michigan to find her temporarily insane. Well, she may never have been saner. Garcia took advantage of the fact that her rapists would not expect her to pursue them armed. Had they expected that, they would have been armed and she would likely have been the one killed. Given women's socialization to nonviolence and failures in law enforcement, the rapist's expectation was epistemically justified. As combatants in a war on women, they had no moral title to rely on that expectation. Neither woman's response seems on these reckonings inexcusably wrong, morally or metaphysically. In the absence of, uh, of non-governmental organizations for defense of women, Individuals like these survivors are all we have to consider. But ultimately, the more important issue is organizing for effective use of force and violence in women's defense. And so I turn to guerrilla feminism. 
In the 1970s and 1980s, guerrilla feminists in the United States carried to another level defense of women against misogyny. <coughs> Typical tactics were property assaults, public graffiti, physical destruction of pornography, trashing <coughs> pornography shops, and so forth. There may have been organized violence against targeted individuals. In 1989, the journal Lesbian Ethics carried an interesting piece titled Guerrilla Feminism, consisting of information about actions in Massachusetts, and I quote from newspaper clippings and other materials sent to Lesbian Ethics anonymously. Reports <coughs> of violence against persons appear in a concluding paragraph which says, in Iowa, a huge group of women kidnapped a man who had raped dozens of women. They castrated him in a cornfield. Closer by, a man who had raped at least 10 women was captured by a band of women. They stamped, rip, stamped rapist all over his body. They superglued his hands to his penis, to his balls, to his legs. This is vigilantism, or freedom fighting, depending on your perspective. A pair of short stories by Melanie K. Kantrowitz called The Day We Didn't Declare War and The Day We Did suggests a more drastic violence against persons who may have <clears throat> suggests that more drastic violations against persons may have been contemplated, even implemented. The first story, The Day We Didn't Declare War, <coughs> describes an organization calling itself the Godmothers. The Godmothers made services available to women who were being assaulted in their homes. This organization put new and better locks on doors sent pairs of godmothers to stay with women in their homes and put up warning signs on doors that the assailant was being monitored by the godmothers. And they did monitor assailants. The second story, The Day We Did, describes a formal meeting at which the godmothers entertained more drastic measures in response to a series of rapes in a local park after police failed to arrest anyone. That story ends without revealing what the godmothers decided. In a later collection of essays, nonfiction, Kay Kantrowitz wrote, in Portland we formed a group called the Godmothers who would protect battered women in their own homes. Women in the self-defense movement and in a group called WAR, the acronym for Women Against Rape, organized in many cities to teach women and girls martial arts through groups like Chimera Self-Defense, which has active branches today. Chimera was formed in the 1970s by women with black belts in martial arts who were getting raped on Chicago streets. Physical skill, they concluded, was only part of self-defense. Their courses consist of 50% attitude training. These are small-scale organizations compared to political states. But like the Portland Godmothers and guerrilla feminists of Iowa and Massachusetts, they demonstrate sensitivity to reciprocity. When men are trained for combat and taught how to kill, is it not justifiable for women to form groups to teach those skills systematically to women who might need them for protection against men so trained? Might it be justifiable to teach women to notice when breaking a law might save life or limb, perhaps one's own, without endangering the innocent? Such projects might be regarded as supplements rather than alternatives to projects for improving the law although tension between these kinds of projects is likely. And yet a serious issue remains. Civil law has trials to determine who is guilty of an offense. And states have international norms for identifying combatants. <coughs> Non-state organizations have only their own relatively subjective improvisations for identifying the enemy, 
which can make their identifications and subsequent targetings seem to others unpredictable or indiscriminate. The difficulty of identifying enemies fairly is a general problem for terrorists, insurgents, and all who would engage them in scruple-governed combat. Rawls's just war principles need to be supplemented with further principles and discussion to address that issue. Okay, now we've got our country. Okay. Do you want the um, I don't mind, I can do it here. Okay. I'd like to thank Claudia very much for that extremely carefully reasoned and very important paper. I think it's quite useful that we are at this point having a discussion about what is basically political theory and forms of social contract because we have had a focus throughout the rest of the afternoon on individualistic explanations of evil, particularly psychiatric explanations. So I think it is also important, uh, enhanced what I also view as primarily an individual <coughs> tactic. I think it is very important, therefore, that we do look at political institutions at this stage. Uh, and I think it's also very interesting, the quote with which Claudia chose to begin, the quote from Rawls, which basically states that in, if there were just institutions, evil would disappear. I'm oversimplifying somewhat. Mm. But it does sound as if global oppression is presumed to be like gender oppression, excuse me, is presumed to be like any other form of oppression in that opening statement from Rawls, and that it will disappear with more just social institutions, which is the very opposite of the focus on individuals. So, social institutions first. As Claudia says, quote, Rawls' hypothesis implies that the worst evils that target women and girls will disappear once the gravest political injustices are gone. But this is obviously a circular problem. How can more just social institutions for women be created unless gender oppression and misogyny <coughs> disappear first? This is the key difficulty, I think. Now, whilst the Rawlsian position avoids the extremes of liberal individualism, which say that basically it's only individuals, not institutions, that matter, and whilst Rawls, of course, recognises the centrality of social structures, the position, I think, nevertheless manifests a lot of the naivete of conventional liberalism in thinking that evil would disappear entirely if we could have just social institutions. It's the Enlightenment idea writ large, and I think we have become very sceptical about the Enlightenment idea, although there are attractive aspects to it, but that's not one of them. Now, it does seem to me, I, I now realise that I, as I didn't at the time I wrote this commentary, that Claudia's chapter was written for the Blackwell Companion on Rawls. <laughs> so I now understand why she was focusing on Rawls. <laughs> um, which I didn't actually, previously. Because I think the critiques of people like Carol Pateman in her sexual contract have very much undermined the focus on Rawlsian contractarianism, liberal contractarianism, as the best means forward for women to avoid their subordination and oppression. The quote from Wolfe I thought was very interesting when she said, as a woman, I have no country. In Pateman's view of the sexual contract, that is no coincidence. The sexual contract precedes the social contract, and under the sexual contract, it is decided in advance that it is men who will draw up the social contract. Uh, you may think that this is historically naive, but First of all, it is not correct to view either the social contract or the sexual contract 
as having a historical basis. I think everyone accepts that with the social contract. I've heard David Miller, for example, here, uh, criticize the sexual contract on the basis that it's not historical, but then you would have to criticize the social contract or the roles in original position on exactly the same basis. And secondly, you can point to various historical precedents, for example, the French Revolution, when everything is rewritten except gender subordination, and when feminists, it's not that feminists didn't raise the issue of whether citoyens should have the same rights as citoyens, and not just to be executed equally, but to, be <laughs> to actually have the right of government. Uh, and the response was to execute feminists like Olympe de Gouges. So it's not that they weren't around, it's just they got executed. So in that historical example, and more generally, according to Pateman, in all the contractarian thinkers except Hobbes, Hobbes is the one exception, the civil subordination of women is written into the sexual contract, which is prior to the social contract. Therefore, a contractarian theory cannot be expected to deliver just social institutions for women because of the prior sexual contract. <coughs> and this problem cannot be magicked away by a more perfect social contract at either the national or the international level because there can be no more perfect social contract until the oppression of women is recognized in such areas as marriage and political representation. Now, as Claudia points out, it's perfectly true that under pressure from feminists like Susan Muller Oaken in particular, Rawls eventually acknowledged his own similar failing in taking the original position to be a contract among heads of families. How did we get heads of families in the original position? Well, obviously, it's not original at all. There has been a prior agreement that it's men as heads of families who will make the contract. Uh, and as Pateman and Charles Mills, who applied the idea to the racial contract, as they said in their book, Contract and, and Domination, Rawls' methodological decision to focus on ideal theory and a well-ordered society has been of little help in addressing the problems of our non-ideal, ill-ordered, patriarchal and racist societies. Now, it seems to me that Claudia's paper, and again I now understand why this is, because it hasn't been written for a book on Rawls, um, doesn't really enter into this sort of profound structural analysis of gender subordination as the very foundation of the liberal state. Rather, it's mainly about observations that even well-ordered states contain so-called outlaw environments, which don't serve the interests of girls and women. And I take this to be closer to rules than to Pateman, mm -hmm. uh, particularly when you state that parties in the original position would want women protected too, which is exactly what Pateman would deny. So it's still not entirely clear to me, except for this being a volume on rules, why, why stick so doggedly to rules, given the lack of fit between his ideal theory and the specific instances of women's oppression on which you rightly focus, as well as your own admission that most misogynist practices do not fit the conventional model of war Rawls has in mind in his Law of Peoples. His parties to war are well-ordered peoples and outlaw states, not individuals. That's quoting from the paper. However, I think you are clearly dissatisfied, and I would say rightly so, with the ability of contractarian theory at national or international level to protect women from violence. And Claudia therefore asks, to what extent, by Rawlsian principles and the notion of a just war, <coughs> women are themselves entitled to respond with violence when the state has effectively abandoned them to evils such as domestic violence and rape. And it seems effectively, in a way, she is arguing that her Bijan state of nature still prevails at that level. The war not of all against all, but of many men and masculine political institutions, which is the larger question, not individual men, and of some colluding women, 
against the female sex as a whole, hence the idea of the war on women. When the liberal state has failed in its promise to overcome this state of war for the majority of its subjects, given that women are the majority, is that majority entitled to revert to self-defence? Now this, I think, is the most interesting part of the paper, and I found it very incisive. For example, this uh, point that you make when you say what is justifiable depends on alternatives in a way that what is just does not. Justice is determined more abstractly by relationships that are not always realisable. I am somewhat less convinced by the parallel with terrorism. Uh, when you say fighting back in a war on women is like fighting a war on terrorism, in which the terrorists are not states, I find that interesting, but if we pursue the parallel, women have no way of putting the so-called terrorists in the equivalent of Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> states that fight terrorists have all the resources of states. Women who fight terroristic actions, evil actions, violent actions against themselves, don't. So they are put at risk as individuals, not as powerful states, and men who rape or commit other acts of violence against women are not pursued with all the force of the law that the state could provide, and so are not outlaws. Uh, it also seems to me that there is a problem on concentrating on individual cases like the two of Garcia and Hughes in trying to lay down a programme for eliminating such evils as violence against women throughout society as a whole, unless we are to assume that potential rapists or wife batterers will be deterred by the knowledge that their victims can rightfully retaliate and be found not guilty in court. But in many cases that won't be feasible. Um, there's also the difficulty that Inez Garcia had a gun in jurisdictions where guns are hard to obtain or for women who not want to carry one. What she did would be a lot harder to do. And very obviously a woman who's already been killed, let's say for honour, cannot retaliate. Now I think one could go further, and this is my last point, I've made the point that it's not, that the liberal contractarian state, in Pateman's view, at least, and also in mine, is flawed from the outset in terms of its ability to protect women against evils, particularly <coughs> evils of violence. And I think it is perfectly true, and we can point to many instances in which law enforcement mechanisms have failed to protect women from such evils, and, and you do a very good job of that. But I think it's important to note that the liberal state may, in defense of ideals such as tolerance, actually expose women to additional evils, such as female genital mutilation or honor killing, if it is trying to strike a balance between protecting what it sees, possibly wrongly, as the views of particular communities, as cultural rights and human rights. Now, it is also true that we have very many women like Uma Narayan, the Indian feminist, who have written that liberals are far too queasy about this sort of thing, and that they really need to be a lot stronger and just say human rights are human rights, full stop. And I think that is a very attractive position. And it's also, I think, interesting that they view the liberal state as betraying women in the name of tolerance, which is, of course, a liberal principle, but needn't be extended to groups that themselves don't preach tolerance. So I think by rejecting pleas for equal protection of the laws from women in such ethnic communities, it may announce the liberal state may do the additional disservice to women of announcing that violence has free reign. And I think this would actually deepen the analysis. It's not simply that the liberal state is neglectful, it's that its core values may be at odds with protecting women from evil. Okay. Do you want to briefly respond? Um, I thought that was wonderful, and I think in the interest of time, maybe we should just open up to discussion. Yeah, I mean, we might run over a little bit if 
that's all right because um, it's been the last yeah, session, fine. but people will be free to leave at 5.45 or even now if they are uh, <laughs> unfree. Anyway, uh, question over here. Um, the, the response um, generated a thought, but maybe um, it might be more straightforward to address <coughs> the problems of a state, a liberal state not protecting women, by adopting a libertarian-style social contract rather than a um, Rawlsian-style one, where making ob the obvious appropriate modifications to lock so that women would be part of the original con contracting process. The analysis would then be that um, this, they, women would also need to um, engage in the state formation process. And that if their rights were not be protect were not protected, they would still be, be able to exercise their rights in what would essentially be the state of nature vis-a-vis -vis, um, the state in either a in the sort of three libertarian models I can think of, Locke's Nozick and Otsukas, there is a process by which the state um, finds a reason to exercise its jurisdiction over um, those who haven't consented to being ruled by the state. Locke uses tacit consent, Nozick uses a liability rule, and Ansuka has a complicated self-defense thing that I don't fully understand. Um, but in, in either of those cases, that condition um, isn't fulfilled if the state isn't protecting women. Um, and therefore women are entitled to form their own organizations mm -hmm. to protect their rights or to, and so use those either to protect their rights directly or to negotiate with the other male-dominated state so that a new accord, perhaps one in similar spirit, rolls an idea of <coughs> a lasting just peace between participants can be established. I suppose I could go about it that way. I'm kind of interested in, in pursuing the feminist idea of separatism. And um, not, I'm not all that interested in states. But um, I, I can see where you're coming from there. And I'll, thank you. I'll think about that. Could I just add something? Sure. Um, I mean, I think the direction of the argument doesn't tend towards libertarianism. I think it tends towards a proper contract, which is not a sexual contract. Pateman's own view is that the marriage contract, for example, is you know, unusable. Well, of course, the whole idea that there is no such thing as the marriage contract anyway. It's a bit of a myth in law. But the idea that contract more generally cannot be used, I think is wrong. I think contract could assure, in my book, Property, Women and Politics, I've tried to formulate a model of a way in which a more just contract could actually assure not only property rights, but also personal rights much more extensively I, I don't to women. I disagree. Yeah. So I wouldn't go down the libertarian route myself. Okay, a question over here. I, I wanted to ask you whether you think misogynist or racist, I'll call them motives as part of bad acts, mm -hmm. make evil worse. And if so, how <coughs> that would affect what it is. I'm trying to relate this to conceptualizing evil. What you just yeah, well, the way I conceptualize it. <laughs> Sorry, I, what I was asking was whether 
if whether she thought that misogyny um, or racist motives made even worse or took actions from the uh, realm of the wrong to the realm of the evil. Yeah, well, the way I understand evils, and I, I work with the noun use, not evil as a force, but evils as events and practices and so forth, have two components. One is the harm component to the victims, and the other is the inexcusable wrongdoing. So when you say one evil is worse than another, you have to say in what respect? It could be worse than it has worse motives, or it could be worse than the harm is worse. And sometimes they're very hard to compare. The idea of a sexist or racist motive is itself ambiguous. There are a lot of different motives that could be, you know, judged to be racist or sexist, not necessarily um, uh, a consciously felt hostility. A lot of people, I think, have very sexist motives who feel consciously benevolent. You know, and so I can't give you a straightforward answer on that. There's just many dimensions of comparison. Okay, uh, Roger. Well, thanks. Uh, I was interested in what you said towards the end um, in criticism of Rawls that you felt that his uh, his account of the Lord of Peoples didn't say enough to us about the non-ideal world. And I was, I was reminded of some things that Brian Barry uh, used to say before he died. And he was very disappointed at the way that uh, Rawls as it were, became less ambitious uh, mm -hmm. and lowered his sight. So a theory of justice was this uh, universal, timeless theory of justice, mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, political liberalism <coughs> and the law of peoples and so on. Were, mm -hmm. As Barry saw it, an attempt to make, uh, to, 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 um, to bring his theory closer to the, the non-ideal world that we, we live in. So. I'm, I'm, what I'm wondering is whether you think there's anything in the in the idea that Donna was um, uh, expressing at one point that uh, the, the rules went wrong really with the idea of well-ordered societies. He should just have stuck mm -hmm. with the idea of human rights. And he should have said any if, you, if he was going to use the uh, notion of a well-ordered society, he should have said any society is not well-ordered to the extent that it doesn't respect human rights, including yes. rights of women. Um, uh, yes, but there are still distinctions with regard to the basic structure of a society that are worth drawing. I think the term well-ordered is very misleading. Um, is it? And he eventually has to back off and say relatively well-ordered, which can cover a multitude of sins. Um, but the Toward the end there, what I was realizing is that when you do non-ideal theory, you, you're playing a whole different game in that you don't have ways, I mean, the state isn't necessarily who your opponent is. It isn't necessarily a national unit with a constitution and a basic structure. It could be terrorists. And I do, the reason I wanted to draw the analogy with terrorism was not that women have the equipment to fight back the way a state does, but rather that women are terrorized in a lot of the same ways yeah. that, um, that states are terrorized. And the problem with engaging with terrorists is that you don't have a common understanding about how to identify the enemy. You know, how do you distinguish combatants mm -hmm. from non-combatants? And if you can't make that distinction, you're in big trouble from the point of view of justice. Okay, Eve. Can I ask you, um, how do you accommodate or, or place the, the painful fact that for some uh, oppressive practices, uh, large numbers of women strongly support them? 
So I'm thinking particularly of female genital mutilation, but also in some cases honor killings. Yes, I mean, what do you do with this? You know, people are enculturated with misogynist practices, beliefs, and attitudes from infancy, infancy on up. Um, there, I'm not sure what the question is. Do you think is it a question about what it's what should be done about it, or I mean, it's a, it's one of the you know painful things that every feminist has to come to terms with that the, the enemy isn't always male. <laughs> it's, it's very often women who are you know, resistant for reasons that everybody can understand. Uh, right, I think you've answered my question. What I wanted to know was how you, how you regarded the wishes of large numbers of women who, as a matter of fact, want to see the oppression yeah, of women. I'd, I'd like to see what they would choose if they knew what the alternatives were like. You know, the, for the most part, they're women who've never lived under any alternative. Um, and who have a lot at stake from, from the point of view of survival and supporting the practices that they're supporting. Um, I don't, uh, I mean, I respect them as human beings. I don't respect the judgment or conclusions that they're making, and I don't think they're made under fair conditions. Okay, we had a question. Uh, and I've been there. I mean, I've been in an abusive relationship in which I was the one defending my abuser. So I know um, from having experienced both. It's like what John Stuart Mill says about the higher and lower pleasures. Those who haven't experienced both, you know, aren't in a position to judge. But I haven't experienced what it's like to live in their circumstances. Which you've probably experienced, you know, analogous forms of, I mean, hopefully not that severe, but well, you don't have to experience murder in order to judge that it's wrong. You can't apply no, but but when you're talking about something as abstract as the higher and lower pleasures or an oppressive society and one that's not, it's different, I think. Okay, question over here. Um, I wanted to ask about the element of inexcusability, moral inexcusability in evil doing. I mean, think of a situation, a state female genital mutilation, yeah. where a mother is very much aware of um, the fact that were she to have her daughter cut, that would be you know, intolerable harm. Mm -hmm. But <coughs> she happens to be in a situation where the option of not having the daughter cut would actually cause even worse harm. Maybe mm -hmm. the daughter will be killed, maybe she'll be um, seen as free game for rape, and so on. Yeah. So, s while recognizing that she would have preferred to not do it, she decides for the sake of the daughter to do what she regards even as wrong, perhaps mm -hmm. as evil. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously the act can't be identified without the context, right? Mm -hmm. So the practice is evil in the sense that there's no more than justified right. excuse for it. But um, I'm wondering, would you say that, that the woman isn't participating in evil, or that her act isn't evil, because there is at least one good reason why she's doing this particular act here? I would say of her that, that her wrongdoing, if it is wrongdoing, is not inexcusable. Mm -hmm. She has a moral excuse. It may not be, um, her reason may not be enough to make what she does right, but she does have a, a moral excuse. I would also say she is complicit mm -hmm. in an evil practice. Complicity, I think, does not imply even culpability the way collaboration does. I would not call her a collaborator unless she's out there actively encouraging the practice. So it's on the act itself. 
myself because I'm not so much interested in judging her as an actor, uh -huh. but on whether the act that she does, okay, perhaps mm -hmm. she's the one who has to do it herself, you know, cut her daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that itself evil? Because I think she, if, if she's in this state that she realizes it's wrong, she might recognize it as such, but classify it as the lesser evil, and yet if her motive is to prevent a greater evil, Mm -hmm. then the act has a moral reason. It, it's not mm -hmm. inexcusable, irrespective of her actions and blameworthiness. Yeah. The act itself is different. Because I'm, I'm just wondering if we have lesser evils and there's a moral reason to do them, yes, there's I a see. problem with the definitions. Yeah, because I'm defining evils as... In a morally inexcusable, yeah. not, right. not the metaphysical Evils, one. and I include deeds and practices, and this is a case of a deed. Is for which certainly she does have a moral excuse in that situation. I want to say the practice is an evil. The deed, you know, um, supports the practice, although she may not support the practice, but the, the deed contributes to it. Is the deed an evil? Why do we need to decide whether that deed is an evil? Because I think, because I think that what happens, especially when those situations are sort of created by diabolical so you evil, have to choose the lesser evil. I think one, if. if you talk to perpetrators, they might feel that they've been stained and they've yes. had, yes. you know, they recognize that what they're doing is evil and not just wrong or not just justified since, you know, this is right. the, uh, the least worst consequences. Mm -hmm. So you might feel stained though simply because you were forced to be complicit in an evil mm -hmm. practice. Absolutely. Um, and um, I'm I'm not sure whether there's any need to decide whether the deed itself was evil, unless you really want to push on this idea of choosing the lesser of available evils, the way I want to talk about choosing the lesser of available injustices. Could I just say, I was on the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Ethics Committee for many years, and we had a very heartfelt discussion about the practice of FGM, which is of course forbidden by law in this country. And I remember hearing an obstetrician gynecologist actually, saying that she felt complicit because she knew that many of her patients would be taken home, quote, you know, to another country where this would be practiced, would be done. Couldn't the RCOG send out uh, guidance on this particular action, so we're looking at the action rather than individuals, because she actually felt that she was contributing to the evil, it would have been better to have done it a very minor infibulation you can say such a thing, in this country under sterile conditions. Mm -hmm. While I didn't really accept that argument fully, she made it absolutely sincerely, and it you know, really was a major dilemma, for which the question was, should there be guidance from the college on the action? So that's the reason mm -hmm. why it has to, one reason why it has to be looked at. Mm -hmm. Thank, you. Thank you, I will think about uh, over here? Yeah, I have asked a lot of questions. I'm very happy someone else to jump in. You. All right, right behind you then. Um, and let me in this to come across as a challenge because I'm actually not even sure what I think, but I'd be interested to hear what you think on this. So, in your talk, you put quite a lot of emphasis on the idea of the state failing the women, so they've actually failed to protect them. Um, I've got a friend who's a criminal solicitor, um, so just wonder what your view on her thoughts are. So basically, talking about rape in particular, so it might not apply to other cases, but in case of rape, um, her view is that it's a mistake to think that the state is failing these women because the reason that so few people are prosecuted 
for rape isn't anything to do with any fairness, but it's to do with the fact that quite rightly there's quite a high burden, you know, has to be beyond reasonable doubt and so on and so forth. And the fact that by nature there's often no witnesses and so on. So her view was it's just a mistake to think that there's any failing, it's just I mean, it's, it's very unfortunate that that's the outcome that so many people get away with it, but there isn't a solution to that. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, a couple, of, a couple of thoughts. It's also true of murder that you, there usually aren't witnesses, but we're much better protected against murder than against, uh, than against rape, or at least a lot of people are, maybe not all of us. Um, but there are also many other considerations uh, that explain uh, why <coughs> rape isn't uh, prosecuted, why women aren't protected against it. It isn't just that the evidence is hard to obtain. When the evidence is right out there, a lot of people are reluctant to believe a woman. They say, well, how do we know? How do we, uh, and uh, in ways that they wouldn't be reluctant to believe someone testifying about another kind of offense. Um, very early, uh, I think in the 1970s, somebody published an article parodying the case of uh, uh, a, um, a man who was accused of having had his, a man who said that he had had his wallet stolen. Say, right? Weren't you asking for it? Wearing such an expensive suit, being out there without any protection, all by yourself, and so on and so indicating the kinds of questions that are asked of women and the reluctance to believe the answers as contrasted with another kind of offense. I just don't think her argument was very plausible. Okay, uh, John Keeks. Uh, well, I was surprised at uh, your hesitation in answering Charlotte's question. Oh, uh, okay. But uh, I'm interested in the excusability condition, uh, yes. which of course, you know, I share yes. uh, your view. Now, why didn't you say to Shlomi simply that it is excusable? It, yep. uh, choosing the lesser evil is excusable under those circumstances. Uh, I, I did. I wanted. I want to say, you know, what I wanted to say was that that act, considered by itself, was not an evil. That um, because there's a moral excuse, the woman has yeah. a moral excuse. But I think Shlomi wanted to push me on that because the way somebody would feel about having done it, that um, that uh, that's letting somebody off a little too easily or not honoring the um, the kind of agony that somebody might experience in having to sort of being pushed into doing something that they regarded as evil. Um, and it is worse than many wrongs, uh, but I, I still want to say that there is a moral excuse there. The practice is evil. In, in performing that deed, she was being complicit in an evil practice, but I wouldn't, I didn't want to say that the deed itself was evil. But if it wasn't, then why does it need an excuse? Oh, because I say if it was wrong, there's a moral excuse. If it wasn't wrong, then there's no need for right. an excuse. And I wasn't, uh, there I wanted to allow that there could be room for disagreement about whether it was justifiable or wrong but excusable. And I think you know, different people would come to very different judgments about whether it was justifiable or whether it was wrong, but there was at least a moral excuse. 
So and that's I'm inclined to go the latter route. Yeah, I, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I've got a question here. Thank you, Claudia, uh, for your, as always, very provocative work. Um, and I uh, also find the idea of uh, the phrase a war against women, uh, there's <coughs> empirical evidence for that. Uh, and now, as you know, we're thinking in terms of the context of, of war time yeah. violence, in terms of mass rape, forced impregnation, uh, in terms of the issues of throwing acid onto women, in terms of the general changing character of war, which you've talked to, in which now 90% of wartime casualties are civilians, a great measure of that. Has it gone up from 80 to 90%? 90%. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, uh, so I, I think there's a, you know, that's a compelling concept. Um, mm -hmm. um, but thinking uh, in terms of the language of war now, now I'm not talking from a Rawlsian, you know, let's, let's have some in terms of the discussion of wealth, but thinking about the kind of discussion about war, uh, of course, with the phrase war is the question, war by whom? And in these examples, uh, they're not the two individuals you're talking about, but in terms of the changing character of war, there seems to be lots of possible answers. One could say it's men. Certainly yeah. this, uh, this uh, systematic violence against women in uh, wartime, one could really say it's it's patriarchy. I mean, what other explanation is for it? One could say it's states and their institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, one could say it's rebel groups, as in northern Uganda. One could say it's genocides, as in Rwanda. One could say it's the international community in terms of the failure to protect and respond. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess my question is, does it matter who the war is by? If you want to talk about the notion of a war against women, <coughs> who the war is committed by matter in terms of your discussion about how to respond. Thank you. Um, it does in terms of a principle that requires you to make discriminations regarding responsibility. And I think with all those various groups and individuals that you mentioned, some of them are bystanders, some of them are perpetrators. They have a lot of play, a lot of different roles, and they don't all have the same degree of responsibility. They couldn't because they don't all have the same power, for one thing. But um, I could say a lot more about that. I think that's a very good question. And it, it is a problem that complicates the question, who's the enemy that I ended with? How do you identify combatants? I mean, how do you even identify who, who you're fighting the war against? OK, we might make the last question. Uh, Steve. Thanks. I'll just go back to Shlomit's point and John Keeks' response to you about the the less real story. Yeah. It seems to me that there is a way of dealing with that that's satisfactory and can deal with both all of your problems, and that's to use dirty hands analysis and say yeah. that the person who's involved with that is doing wrong to do right. They they're doing as objective wrong. They're doing it for the right kind of reason to bring about the less evil. They feel the the residue and the, and the moral pollution from having produced such an act, but they also realise that doing that is. The I, I thought so of that you, immediately. The hands are covered with blood, literally. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. so that's the best way, it seems, to deal with those rather rare but mm -hmm. very difficult situations that might arise. I never use the dirty hands because I find it so murky a concept. It can mean so many different things. So for me, it doesn't clarify things. But inevitably, that metaphor comes to mind, especially when you're talking about clitoridectomy. Your hands are literally covered with blood. Okay, well then it remains to thank our speaker and commentator. <laughs>